Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about how our brains processes images and forms new memories. Your brain is doing a lot of work, even though you may not be aware of it. It has to process all of these signals about the world around it, and then after that, form memories. So how does it decide what's important to save and what's important to discard? And what mechanisms are it using to convert all this information into significant memories? Memory forms such an important part for all species of living, growing and of course surviving into the future without memory creatures wouldn't know what food tastes good and what food might make them sick likewise they wouldn't remember where to go for certain key events mating season feeding season or other key migratory events they also would remember where they stashed their dinner or where they left their eggs memory is critically important for survival But for humans, when we think about memory, we often think about it in the terms of trying to recall our own experiences, maybe describing something that we did, or ate, or talked to, or some place we visited. And these memories can often be subject to change. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the narrative concept of the unreliable narrator. This story element is where somebody is retelling something to you, but maybe they didn't quite get all the details right. Now, this inner story can make for a pretty interesting read or viewing of a movie. But when it comes to something important like an investigation or a court case, well, that's where people's memories can be quite difficult to manage and deal with because it's been proven countless of times how much people can overlook or miss, miss key details of a particular scene. And so when they're recounting their experiences in the witness stand, for instance, well, they might leave out some pretty significant evidence. Now, how the brain decides what information is stored and what parts get lost is a really important function for the brain. Now, obviously, you couldn't save every single detail of everything that you witness. Much like your phone or your computer, you would simply run out of memory if you were to do so, or run out of space in your brain, in your computer inside your head. So the brain does a few things to streamline this. It doesn't just write down or record everything that it sees. It prioritizes and processes these memories. In fact, this is one of the things your brain does when you go to sleep at night and why REM sleep is so important for maintaining brain health. The question is, how does your brain pick and choose what memories to optimize, which ones to keep, which ones to discard? And this idea has led to a lot of different debate and investigation over the years. Researchers from the University of Glasgow and Birmingham Universities in the UK have just published in the journal Nature Communication a way that they have studied the way that memories are selected for key details over time, helping to preserve the gist and throw out the information that's not deemed as relevant. And the researchers in this paper were Julia Lifanov, Juan Linda Domingo and Maria Wimber. And they designed an experiment that could basically give repeated exposure to some cards and then track in and check in with the people maybe a short time afterwards and then a couple of days later to see just how much they recalled. Now the key part about this experiment is that they were trying to analyse two different things to see if you could remember two different types of information. 
first was a perceptual detail, a detail that was there, present, but not necessarily overly significant. In this example, they used cards that had images that were colored or grayscale. Now, functionally, the card was a card and was displaying a picture, but whether the picture was colored or whether the picture was a grayscale, this perceptual detail was different. Another type of detail that they examined and investigated was semantic elements, whether or not it showed an animate or inanimate object. Now that's a pretty big difference. And because a difference has meaning, it's called a semantic element. Now, what they were doing in this test was trying to see if the brain was recording and holding onto these different memories in different ways. Was it latching onto the semantic element, whether or not it was an animate or inanimate object that was being shown to them, or whether or not it was latching onto perceptual details, these minor things, whether it was colored or grayscaled, or was it both? And how did these compare to each other over time? Now, as Julia Liffin of the lead author of this study states, many memory theories assume that over time, as people retell their stories, they tend to forget the surface details, but remain and retain the meaningful semantic content of an event. So let's say you're trying to recall something that you ate for breakfast yesterday. You might remember what you ate, you might remember what was on the TV or who you were talking to at the time, but you probably don't remember the position of the light as it moved across the room. You probably don't remember the color of the sky as you were doing so. Now, these little details are important, but your brain probably chose to not focus on them. They didn't have semantic meaning. Now, Professor Maria Wimber, who's a senior author on this study from the University of Glasgow, when discussed the results of this study and how it sort of guided and shaped their understanding of how the brain forms with memory, because there is a pattern towards recollection of meaningful semantic elegance. We demonstrated the study indicates that memories are biased towards meaningful content in the first place. And we have shown in previous studies that this bias is clearly reflected in the brain signals too. Our memories change with time and, and use, and that is a good and adaptive thing. We want our memories to retain information that is most likely to be useful in the future when we encounter similar situations. So what they see in this study is that there is a clear bias towards semantic memory. And that content is there at the beginning, that bias is there at the very first test they did. And then in the repeated follow-up test several days later, the content becomes stronger and stronger with the passage of time. Now, in the second test, two day later test, they were much slower at answering the perceptual questions, ones that were about what small details or non-significant meaning related details were present on the cards. But the semantic detail questions they were faster and better at responding to. Now, this means that the brain is making a shift from detail-rich to more concept-based memories. It was strong and well-biased in the sample that they did, but there was a key note. The shift from detail-rich to more conceptual memories was far less pronounced in a group of subjects who kept repeatedly viewing the images rather than being asked to think about them. Now that's interesting because it means that once upon repeated showing, repeated viewing, you start to save more, I guess, of that information because your brain goes, I've seen this now heaps of times. It's probably significant. And that means they don't have that conceptualization of that memory, turning and filtering out all the unimportant stuff, just saving the key semantic elements. Now, aside from of course, the applications for investigations and criminal proceedings and other important avenues of use of memory, 
it's also really important for understanding how to treat people with certain neurological conditions. There are also times if you're suffering from, say, a post-traumatic stress disorder, when a patient will often suffer intrusive and traumatic memories that they can fixate on. And these tend to overgeneralize experiences to novel situations. So understanding how the brain forms, retains, and grabs these events, filters out the unimportant stuff and focuses on the key meaning. Understanding the mechanism which brains do that in normal circumstances and then in traumatic stress response circumstances is really important to help develop appropriate treatments to help manage these. Now, this paper was published in the journal Nature Communications with lead author Julia Lifanov and contributing authors Juan Leonardo Domingo and Maria Wimba. about how the brain remembers and forms memories. But the brain also does a lot of different things when it processes that image, particularly if it sees that image a few times. And that study mentioned before just touched on that idea a little bit. But a new paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with lead authors, Vahid Murpur, Travis Meyer, Enrico Simoncelli, and under the direction of Associate Professor Nicole Rust. Now, they've worked together collaborating across different universities, University of Pennsylvania and New York University, to investigate what happens in your brain when it processes an image. Now, I'm an engineer, particularly a mechatronics one, and I've done a lot of focus on signal theory and understanding how we filter and process images, maybe for use in automation, maybe for the use of taking a really nice picture on your smartphone, or maybe for making sure you have a really low latency ping in your gaming setup. In all these situations, we're trying to maximize our signal output and we don't want any noise coming in. This so-called signal to noise ratio, tying back to things like Shannon Hartley theorem, it's really important. Basically, you want your signal to be really strong and your noise to be really low. It's pretty basic. If there's more noise, it's harder to distinguish what's significant in the signal to the noise itself. Basically, the sound, for example, gets lost. If I were to record this podcast, in a particularly noisy environment, it'd be really difficult to distinguish my voice, talking to you right now, from the background noise. When it comes down to it, all of the other noise, chirping, washing of wind, would create a lot of static or hiss, and you would hear something that'd be pretty poor quality. Hopefully it wouldn't subject you to that, but that's an example of a pretty uneven or unequal signal-to-noise ratio. You want lots of signal, not much noise, especially if you're looking for really small details. Mostly because in that small details, if your noise spikes are pretty big, and if they're the same size as your signal spikes, it's gonna be really hard to tell them apart. That's basically the main thing. Now, imagine your brain as a computer. It's trying to process all of these things that you see around you through all of your different senses, but they all suffer this same processing problem. Now, let's take a specific example, and that's what these researchers did. They were looking at something that's a pretty common everyday task, viewing an image, the same image, a few times. Now, when you look at something that you've seen before, compared to when you look at something that you haven't seen before, your brain does different things. And until recently, neuroscientists believed that vigorous activity in a visual part of the brain called the inferotemporal cortex 
let's just call it the IT cortex for now, meant that the person was staring at something novel, something unusual, like the face of a stranger, never before seen before a painting, a new sign, a new word on a page. Now, if you see less IT cortex activity, that probably meant that you were familiar with something. Now, that's the concept that neuroscientists have been working under for a while, but it had some challenges, and that's what Associate Professor Nicole Rust and others were looking at. Now, the name for that model was called repetition suppression. Basically, the IT cortex didn't fire up if it was a repeated image. Now, this didn't quite make sense when you see different images producing different amounts of activation, even when they're novel. Now, that was pretty surprising to Associate Professor Nicole Rust and others because that meant the brain wasn't quite as simple as they thought. Now, what they saw is that other factors, brightness, for instance, or contrast, resulted in a similar effect. That is, the same thing, like you were viewing the same image over and over again, they were seeing that same response, even if it was a new image. But if you had changed the brightness level or the contrast level. All right, this caused them to go back to the drawing board and propose a new theory, one which the brain understands the level of activation expected from a sensory input, and then tries to correspond behind it. So it's not just familiarity that it's using to suppress or boost processing in this area of the brain, but also other factors as well. So what actually happens when your brain, this massive computer, sees something? Now, the problem is you've got to translate this world of all the different sensors that you have. But let's just focus on vision because it's picking one. It has to process all of these images into something that your brain can understand, interpret. That's the job of a sensory system. But how it gets there is complex. Light comes into your eyes via the rods and cones, travels by neuron to neuron, through a whole bunch of different areas of your brain that make up the visual system. And then to the visual brain area called the IT cortex. That is a huge pathway, a huge super information highway of millions of neurons, 16 million or so, that link in different patterns depending on what you see. Now, your brain is set up to understand these different patterns and know what they translate to for meaning. So, you'll get one pattern for a specific face or a different pattern for a coffee cup or a different pattern for the concept of a pencil. That's what the visual system does, according to Rust. It builds world back up to help you decipher what you're looking at. Now, as we talked about, the current working theory repetition suppression for how the brain boosts and activates this IT cortex, this processing cortex, sort of had a threshold. After you go over that threshold, the brain goes, cool, this is important, let's process it. Otherwise, it doesn't do it. And the problem is, lots of different factors, not just repetition, kick this processing system into overdrive. So Vahid Merpur and others proposed this new idea that the brain corrects for the changes caused by these other factors like contrast. And then after that calibration and the brain gets used to it, you can go back to seeing the same type of model as before. Now, how do they get to this study? Well, the researchers presented a sequence of grayscale images to two adult male rhesus monkey. Now, every image appeared exactly twice. The first time was new, the second time obviously was familiar. And in a range of high-low contrast combinations, so a lot of different pattern or versions of these images being presented. Now, each viewing lasted approximately half a second. And the animals were trying to use eye movements to indicate whether the image was new or familiar, disregarding the contrast levels. So you train up these macaques, these monkeys, in order to respond to these images. And they're useful because you can then analyze their brains as they do so. But the similar type of test could be done in humans, it's, it's quite straightforward. Now, as these macaques perform this memory task, 
the researchers actually recording the neural activity in the IT cortex, measuring the spikes of hundreds of individual neurons. So in this information superhighway, they were basically monitoring lots and lots of these key points to see what path the brain systems were taking, which journey that they made. Now, often when people process neurological images, they'll use proxies of neural activity across thousands, tens of thousands of neurons. They kind of take all those samples and smooth them out to a big picture. That's not what Professor Rust and her team were doing. They were looking at specifically which pathway, which neurons it were taking. And the reason why they were doing this is they knew the individual neuron path information. Now, once they had this, they could start to map out the brain for how the macaques could distinguish from memory from contrast. What they found is familiarity and contrast both changed the overall firing rate, which means this, it got over the activation threshold for the brain effectively. And that's pretty interesting because that means our brain is using lots of different factors, not just familiarity, to pre-process and filter out these signals. Now, of course, neuroscientists need to do far more diverse experiments here. But if our brain can filter out and change different things on like contrast, much in the same way as we do with familiarity, and we could be using a number of different triggers as well. And the key to understanding these is the key to understanding how on a physical level, our brain chooses which information to filter out and which ones to discard. That's really significant and important for not only sensory understanding, but also understanding for what happens with people with memory impairing diseases like Alzheimer's. Understanding how memory and information gets into the deeper parts of the brain in a healthy brain works, helps you develop preventative plans and treatments when you have a brain which is suffering from a neurological disorder. Alzheimer's, for example, Parkinson's, where areas of the brain start to degrade. Some of these pathways might be lost, and thus some of the information getting in might be lost. So it's a great way to view the physical process of collecting images and how your brain sorts them and what mechanisms it used to filter out the signal from the noise. A great paper published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. The lead author on this paper was Vahid Merpo, along with Travis Meyer, Eros Monicelli, and Nicole Rust. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week, we focused on how our brain processes images and how it can form and save important memories and what triggers it uses to choose which ones are important and not. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.